sex. It's about more than you think. Last week was Easter, and uh, we were advertising last week the, the message for this week, shared it in the services, put a PG-13 rating on it, parents, that's your last warning. Um, we uh, had it on the billboards, uh, the billboards, the, the screens and the, the monitors around the church. Well, it was Easter, so we had a lot of families that, you know, hey, let's take a family photo and, and let's enjoy this. And <laughs> it actually uh, created accidentally some very memorable family photos. Here's one that was sent to me as an example of... Uh, So, sorry about that. <laughs> Romans. Romans is a book that is not primarily about sex, but it is a book that unblushingly addresses sexual immorality and sexual sin as an evidence of man's rebellion against God. And this is our, our fifth message, our last message actually, here in chapter one and from verses 18 and, and following. So we're just, we're just ringing this passage for everything that we can. It's such an important passage in the whole Bible. And so I'd like to do just a quick review and then we'll get into uh, answering the question about what, uh, what sex actually is all about. But just to remind us that Paul begins in verses 18 and following and, and shares that the whole universe, everything that God made, is a reflection uh, or tells of God's glory and his goodness and his power. And this is, uh, this is the verse 19. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And as we've talked about you know, that, that when God made the galaxies and when God made the giraffes and when God made the mountains and when God made uh, the valleys and everything else, that he made all of it as a, a, a created physical reflection of what he is like spiritually. It all speaks of his divine nature. And of course, that includes human sexuality and sexual biology is part of what God looked at and said it is very Good. Think of that. Sexuality hints at the divine nature. But then as we continued in Romans 1, we saw how man rebels against God, rebels against living a life of worship before God, and trades God for a made thing, a created thing. Dethrones God from his heart. Here's verse 24. Therefore God... Uh, or I'm sorry, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We as human beings, we are made for worship. We are made to worship something. There's something, there needs to be something greater than ourselves that gives our life meaning and purpose. And of course, we are made to find that meaning and purpose in God. But in our rebellion and in our sin, we dethrone God from our hearts but we can't live without something being on that throne. And so we then enthrone something or someone that now becomes the focus of our life, now becomes the purpose of our life, is the thing, the person that we, that we live for. And of course, this is a horrible trade, to trade God's glory for something so much less than God's glory. 
but that's what we do. And of course, the brokenness in the world around us and society and all of the pain in relationships and families all speak to how terrible it is to live for a pretend God, a fake God, a counterfeit God. And then we get to verses 24 and verse 26, and Paul describes the effect of this dethroning of God and enthroning of something other than God, and we find that man's idolatry races towards one particular category of confusion and sin, sexuality. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Here's verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. We come to find out that there is an inescapable connection between how I view God and how I view myself. And the higher I honor God, the more I worship God, the better it defines who I am, right down to my sexuality. When I dishonor God, I am actually dishonoring myself. The enthroning of something other than God brings man's glory down. doesn't elevate us, it, it de-elevates us, it lowers us. We become less than what God made us to be. And that brokenness is felt especially in our sexuality. In fact, the Greek word there in Romans 126 for dishonorable passions, it's a very strong sexual word. In fact, the NIV, if you have an NIV, it just goes ahead and translates it sexual immorality. But what it really, the word really means is a freedom to pursue the forbidden thing. Freedom to pursue the forbidden thing. Man, man uh, gets rid of a passion for God and enthrones then a passion and a desire for forbidden fruit. To have the thing that is, we're told we can't have. And of course, that's our nature. You tell us we can't have something, we want it more. That's part of what a sin nature is. So God responds to man's rebellion by cutting the tether to our sexual identity. He gives us over. He says, oh, you want to be free to pursue the forbidden fruit, especially sexual forbidden fruit? I'll just give you over to that. And as we've studied this, we see that you know, we don't break the Ten Commandments, they break us. Who suffers when we are not tethered to God? We do. And one of the key areas that we suffer is in our sexual identity, in our sexual expression, in our sexuality. You lose God, you lose your grip on your sexuality, on your masculinity, on your femininity, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. And Paul highlights this detethering in verses 26 and 27 uh, with, with homosexuality as one of many expressions of sexual uh, brokenness because it can include really any sexual expression that goes against God's purpose for sexuality. John Stott comments on this. He says, the history of the world confirms that idolatry tends to immorality. A false image of God leads to a false image of sex. Well, we don't want a false image of sex. We want to write one, and that's the purpose of this message uh, today. What is, then, sex actually all about? Every generation thinks they discover sex. Or are somehow improving on it, right? 
So, and this is ironic because it's the oldest thing about us. I mean, people have been having sex, sexual relations for, you know, since mankind began. And so for all of these centuries, millennia, mankind has been having sexual relations. And yet, if you were to ask the average guy in the street today, after all of these centuries of all of this happening, what is sex actually all about? I doubt that we would get much more than something like this. Dude, I mean, come on. It's like sex. So, you know, it's like wild thing. Come on, bro, like. (laughs) Excuse me, sir, you haven't actually answered the question. And isn't it ironic? I mean, there is more about sex available to us than any other society that has ever lived. There is more information, there is more pictorial guides, there is more literature, we have more access to information about it, and yet, we know so little about what it actually is about. I wonder if you know, what is sex actually about. I had more than one parent this week that said to me, uh, do you think that I should bring my teenager to the service this Sunday and to hear the message? And I was like, absolutely yes. And I mean that, like yes. Why? Because every day they're hearing the sermon of the world on what sex is all about. Every single day they are hearing false truth, a pornified, deified version of what sex is all about. And parent, if, you're, if your kid is a teenager and you think that he's not, been, you know, not had access to that, you are, you are in denial. And uh, absolutely. And if the parents don't teach, and if the, t- the church doesn't teach, where are they going to get an actual truthful perspective on sex, sexuality, gender, and all the rest? They got to get it They gotta get it from us. So every once in a while here at Bethel Church, we have a message like this, and maybe we should do it more often. I prefer not, but okay. (laughs) So all that to say, if you're a teenager today, you be listening up, and you make sure that your parents are listening as well. So what is sex all about? All right, here's, here's, my outline's easy. All, All my main points begin with the same letter, help you remember what this is actually all about. And we begin with picture, that sex is a picture, that it is actually about God, and specifically it is about plurality in unity. So let's go back to the very beginning when we find out about sexuality from the, this is the first hint at this, verse 27, chapter one, Genesis. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? Male and female, he created them. Romans 1 tells us that everything in this world, every good thing in this world, 
It was made to reflect what God is like. It all speaks of him, so much so that men are without excuse. There's hints and pictures, reflections, parables in the, in the created world around us and our experience of this sensory world that is telling us what God is like. But I, we need to realize that more than the galaxies and, and, and more than the atoms, you and I are a clearer picture of what God is actually like than all the galaxies combined. Because when God made human beings, he uniquely made us in his image. He made us to, in a more elevated way, reflect what he is like than the animals, the plants, and the stars. And specifically, this means that we are self-aware, we have self-consciousness, we have moral awareness, we have spiritual awareness. And these things separate us from the animals and the plants and everything else. But this verse, verse 27, goes on to say that part of this reflection of God's image is that God made us both male and female. Notice, both male and female, both genders uniquely reflect what God is like. Now, that's not to say that God is male or God is female, because God is neither. God is spirit. But male and female together reflects something of what God is like. Masculinity in its strength and its leadership. Femininity in its complementary strength of beauty and gentleness. Maleness and femaleness together show what God is like. In what way? Well, let's go back to what God is like. God is, here's the theology word, is a trinity, which is a mashup of triunity. Okay, triunity, trinity. And it's a word that describes the, the nature of the Godhead, that God is one and God is three. That's not to say that there are three gods, there is one God. But within the Godhead, there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So they are distinct but they are so unified that the Bible talks about uh, the God being one. And Christianity is a monotheistic faith. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. We serve one God. He is the most high God. But he is, within that Godhood, plurality. And so we find with God that he is plurality in unity. Now this is important because... God could have made us asexual, asexual, like worms or something. He could have made us that way. But he chose to make us male and female. He chose to make us the same but different. In fact, imagine with me, and this is purely speculative, God's creative thoughts as he contemplates making mankind. How can we, this is within the Trinity, how can we make these humans reflect our plurality in unity? Hmm, I know. Let's make them similar but different and make their bodies fit together physically. Let's give them a strong urge to merge those bodies together physically. But how will that reflect our absolute commitment to each other? Hmm, I know. Let's make their bodies fit and let's create a relationship of covenantal love where they can freely enjoy those moments of unity. 
Yeah, but what, we, what will we call that? Let's call it marriage. Plurality and unity. Sexual intimacy is plurality. The two become one. Plurality and unity, like God, is plurality and unity. Which brings us to the subject of nakedness. Is that an awkward uh, transition? (laughs) You're like, I see no logical connection there. I just say it. Brings us to the subject of nakedness. Let's talk about nakedness because nakedness is a remnant of the biblical story that you and I live with every day. And we maybe don't think like biblically, theologically, narratively about the feelings that we have regarding nakedness, but I think all of us understand what nakedness is. It is, to, it is to be without clothing, right? In its core definition. Is that a good definition? No clothes, I guess. Uh, but in that experience of no clothes, human beings universally feel something. We feel naked, but what we really are feeling, biblically, is we're feeling a level of shame. Okay, We feel a kind of shame. And we feel shame about certain places of our body. Are you with me? Nobody wants to amen in the sermon at all, I know. <laughs> it's the quietest, quietest congregation I've ever spoke to. Uh, we feel nakedness about certain places of our body. And I don't know if you've ever thought about, why do I feel shame about this part of my body when I don't feel shame about my, my nose and my ears my, my fingers and my toes? Why when I go to the beach, will I expose my calf, but I won't expose other areas, even at the beach I keep these places covered? And that is especially heightened when we are naked in somebody else's presence. You know, back in the Stone Age when I was in school, I think of, uh, I think of middle school at my middle school, I don't, I don't think schools do this anymore, but at my middle school, you were required to take a shower after gym class, okay, like every day. And the way that my school was, it wasn't like you had nice little sort of individual showers with a curtain. It was just a big room with a bunch of shower heads, and all the boys are in there together. Awesome. exactly your favorite part of the day. Why? Because we're self-conscious about our bodies, and we are self-conscious about certain places in our bodies, our sexual places. We're We're the only animals on the planet that wear clothing. Is that a evolutionary coincidence? No, the Bible says why we not only wear clothing, but why we cover where we cover. Here's Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, had they been naked prior to the fall? I mean, in the sense of not having clothes on, they had been naked. But once they sinned against God, all of a sudden, they became very self-conscious of certain parts of their body. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and mankind's been sewing fig leaves together ever since. So why do we feel 
self-conscious about certain body parts, and we don't feel that same self-consciousness about other body parts. And it, this, is, this is what I think. I'm not sure I can totally prove this, but this is my, my uh, theory on this, is because when we sinned against God, the places of our body that God designed to reflect his glory in the highest sense, okay, sexually, plurality and unity, those places that were designed by God to reflect the highest glory, after sin, now feel the greatest shame. Do you get that? The places that were meant for the greatest glory now feel the greatest shame. And shame in our nakedness is a lasting testimony that our sexuality is much more than just body parts. Our sexuality is deeply spiritual. And we live that and feel that in a way every day as we get ready in the morning. Now if I can press this one step further, and the staff is saying one but not two, do not say anything that you shouldn't say, okay, but one step further. As you know, many of you know my story, I was married later in life, I got married when I was 44. And by God's grace, I was a virgin when I got married. And I, uh, I that's fine, but. <laughs> Yay, virginity, okay. Uh, I was surprised at how immediately I felt completely comfortable naked in the presence of my wife. Okay? <laughs> and the, the reason I say that is that nakedness is a remnant of the biblical story, but the marital bed is as well. Okay? That place where a man and wife can be together and feel no shame. It's to be a safe place, okay? A restorative place. At least it should be. And pastorally, I just wanna, if I could apply this to our church. You know, recently we have had a rash of married couples who have come out with the fact that they're considering divorce. And besides being heartbreaking, what is the problem with divorce? in light of what we're talking about here. Why does God say in Malachi 2, I hate divorce? And one clear reason that God hates divorce is that God made marriage to reflect what he is like. It's to speak a truth about what God is like. And divorce doesn't speak a truth, it speaks a lie. The Godhead will never divorce. The Father will never forsake the Son. The Son will never forsake the Spirit. And then when you add on to that, Ephesians 5 says that marriage also reflects Christ's relationship with the church. Christ will never divorce the church, okay? Never. And our marriages are, ought to tell the truth about God and Christ. And I know there's lots of stories, there's lots of reasons that things happen, and, and you know, we, we believe in grace and all the rest, but at the very least, every divorce should break our hearts because it's saying something that isn't true. So friends, sex is about way more than most people think. And this is just the first point. Behind sex are ancient purposes and divine pictures that God 
built into the fabric of humanity. Okay, picture. Secondly, what is sex about? People, specifically more of them. Here is Genesis 1, verse 27. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time with this because I think it's pretty self-evident that God's means of mankind multiplying and filling the earth is, is sexual reproduction. And that children are a part of sex in that they are God's normal result from sex. Not always, but a biblical view of sex A high view of sex will also have a high view of children. Children are not the unfortunate consequence of having sex. They are the blessed result of having sex. And to elevate children and the the family and to see all of this as part of God's grace to us. And this has implications for all kinds of things like birth control, abortion, adoption, and a host of other matters I'm not going to get into today. But if sex wasn't pleasurable and sex wasn't desirable, but you got children from it, that alone would make sex sacred. People, and more of them, is what sex is about. Third, okay, third is protection, okay, protection. Here is the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 7. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. As a side comment, I've never heard of a couple struggling in this area because they are spending too much time praying. Okay, but in that very remote possibility that you need more time for prayer, okay. But notice, then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now we could do a whole message just on this right here. I don't have time and I'm not going to. And if I did though, I would explain that the rights that he's talking about here are in the context of love, not demand, But I want you to see that God's design, part of God's design for sex, well, God's design for sex, let me say it this way, God's design for sex is heterosex, man and woman, and only within marriage sex. Okay, so Paul here is emphasizing that sexual intimacy within marriage helps fight against sex outside of marriage. That a robust marital sexual relationship is a guard and a protection against temptation for sex outside of marriage. And so one reason that couples, married couples, should take their sexual relationship seriously is because it protects the fidelity of your marriage. Now, some years ago, I did a message almost just like this, And I got a letter, an anonymous letter from a man in our church who wrote me, and basically his whole letter was, you talk about sex and marriage, I'm here to tell you that I'm living a sexless marriage. And honestly, it was a sad letter, and an incredibly dangerous letter 
I mean, husbands and wives, let's just think about it. Is it wise to send your spouse into the sexualized world that we live in every day without them being sexually content? Now, if your husband's going to a celibacy conference, maybe okay. But our society does not promote and celebrate fidelity. It promotes and celebrates infidelity. And Christian couples, we need to love God enough and love and see sacred as our marriage enough that we strive to protect our marriage by striving for sexual contentment within it for both partners. Now, this is also a protection for single people. And this is where my story is kind of helpful because I lived as a single man for a very long time. And uh, I went through puberty at the normal age and I got married later. So I had a long time as a single man to think about these things. And sex is a pro- sex in marriage is a protection because it motivates single people to get married. It motivates single people to get married. When sex is reserved for marriage, it's amazing how motivated single people are to get married. Or if I could say it straight, how often I hear couples that are engaged to get married. When are you getting married? Well, we're, we're not sure. We're thinking about maybe, you know, there's this hall that we really want to use. They're booked up for three years, so we're thinking like, you know, 2021, 2022, somewhere in there. I just want to say, let's be honest, you're sleeping together. You're sleeping together. If there's no hurry, you either are not sexually attracted to one another, in which case you shouldn't be getting married, or you are already sleeping together, which is a problem. Sex in marriage is a protection, and if I could say this, especially for women who want to get married. Now, ideally, you're not going to marry a man who wants sex outside of marriage. But one good way to end up married is to make him wait. And if he won't wait, dump him. And if he will wait, he also will keep moving up the wedding date. It's a protection. And how I see this, you know, couples, they give into it, or a woman gives into the demand of the husband, and she thinks, by doing this, I'm going to get what I want. No, you are taking a step in not getting what you want. And Christian marriages, let's back to married couples here. Can I just say, and, and I say this with all the understanding of, of challenges in this broken world, and we're all sinners, and, you know, physical challenges and all the rest, but generally speaking, Christian marriages should have the best sex lives because we take sex way more seriously than the world does. We see it as a a sacred thing, a holy thing, a protection, a reflection of God. We're like, you know, we're, we're theologians in bed, or we should be. We do it for God's sake, and we do it for God's glory and our spouse's sake, and and I wish we could earn that reputation. I really do. I I wish the reputation was that Christian sex is the best sex. So let's all work on that. Perhaps this afternoon. 
All right, picture, people, more of them, protection. Here's the fourth, the fourth purpose of, of sex, pleasure. Pleasure. Now, there's many passages that I could read from. I'm just choosing one here. Proverbs 5. Let your fountain be blessed. And one of the things about the way that the Bible describes and talks about sex, it doesn't do so gratuitously. It does so poetically and pictorially. But I think we can understand what that's getting at. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now that's not a verse we read publicly very often in church. But it's in the Bible. And if you think that that's like me just picking one out that happens to talk like this, I would footnote the entire book of the Song of Solomon, which is, I don't have time to read it, and I'd probably be embarrassed to death if I did, because it's an entire book celebrating erotic love within marriage, and it's in the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's just ask the question, who made sex pleasurable? Is this, a, is this an evolutionary uh, sort of thing? No. God made sex pleasurable. Who made those body parts to do what they do and to provide pleasure? God made them to do that. It is a gift. You know, the ancients believed that orgasm was a spiritual connection with God. And, and that's why in their, in their pagan idolatry they would have you know, they would have thousands of temple prostitutes that would be there, and the, and the cities would go, and they would worship God, and they would see that experience as being actual, in that moment, you are connecting with God. They were worshiping a created thing rather than the creator. Okay. It's not God. Sex is not God. God is not sex. It is a gift from God. Not unlike men who go to the strip clubs, or women who read sexual fantasy fiction, looking, striving, wanting something in this category to, to be a sensation that brings meaning to my life. I forget what theologian, but somebody said that even a man that goes to a brothel is seeking God. But sex isn't God, and God isn't sex. God gifted sex and all of its pleasures to us. Now, in saying that, the fact that it is a created thing means that it also has incredible limitations. Sex has incredible limitations. And if I can say this discreetly, okay, I am happy to have now, getting married in my 40s, I now have a sexual life with my wife. However, and young people and single people, please listen to me. Sex is a wonderful thing, but it, is, it has limitations to it. Our culture tries to tell us that, you know, if you're, if you're like a 15-year-old boy and, and you, you know, you gotta have sex, that's when you become a man. Or it's presented as this effervescent, singular experience that forever brings meaning to life. 
And I'm here to tell you it's not that. It's, it's a lot like things that you dream about. It's kind of what you expect, and it's also kind of not what you expect. As an example, I've been surprised at how quickly after sexual intimacy, Jennifer and I can actually have a little bit of a disagreement. Really? All those years single, it was like, this, is, this will bring utopia. Like it'll be, it'll be a, like a permanent heaven on earth, never a problem. We'll be so enraptured. And, and then you get married and you realize that life happens and there's challenges and there's difficulties and it's strangely quiet right now. <laughs> so my encouragement is to hold sex high for the right reasons but don't hold it high, too high for the wrong reasons. No created thing replaces God for lasting joy, and that includes sex. Okay. So, what's the purpose, what's sex all about, those four? It is a picture, people, more of them, protection, pleasure. I'd like to conclude by talking about sex in the new covenant. Okay, sex in the new covenant. And by new covenant, what I mean is this that's a word that, that the Bible uses to describe post-cross, post-resurrection, our relationship with God in the new covenant. So this is sex after Jesus comes. And it ties in with the video that we watched earlier because I know as I talk about this, how many people feel guilt? How many people here feel shame? You're thinking about mistakes of the past and regrets and things like this and you, I just know that, okay? And my heart, my heart is with you in this and I'm so glad that we can talk about sex and sexual brokenness in the context of the new covenant because if you think about the world that we live in, think about that, that guy that's just, you know, he's in front of the flickering screen late at night, absorbed with porn or, you know, the the, the man or woman who is, is constantly seeking serial relationships, somehow wanting to feel loved or whatever it might be, where do people like that in society go for any kind of solution or answer? I'm unaware of anything. They just, hey, wallow in it and they continue to be absorbed and addicted by it. Where do they go? And I'm here to tell you, if that's you, praise God that we celebrate a savior who offered and offers new life through his death on the cross for us and a relationship with him that brings healing to even sexual brokenness. And how do we know that, that that's true? Do you realize how many people in the story of the gospels that came to Jesus were living sexually broken lives? Like, famously, John 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Jesus meets her at the well and and, uh, and says, hey, can you give me something to drink? And he engages her in this conversation. And he points out to her, you have been divorced five times, and right now you're sleeping with a man that's not your husband. Now, that person might think that the Messiah, the Son of God, would be like too holy to engage in conversation with you. Or maybe you're here today, and that's like, man, that sounds like my story, sort of. See in John 4 that Jesus amazingly reaches out to her, offers her living water in a faith relationship 
with himself. Her life is transformed. She runs into the city. Come and hear the man who told me everything I ever did. And she was a woman everybody knew who had done quite a lot. And yet now, no shame about it. Come meet him. He met the prostitute and offered her a fresh start. How about the woman caught in adultery in John 8? What does Jesus do? He scribbles in the sand, and then he says to her, go and sin no more. He offers the sexually broken a new life and a fresh start, something better than sexual brokenness. And sex outside of marriage is a sin. We have to say it. That's not God's plan. Other deviations of sexual uh, purity are not God's plan. But God's plan is for Jesus to die for all sins, and that includes sexual sin. He was willing to bear your shame on the cross and to die for that and to say to all of us, like the Samaritan woman, go and sin no more. So Christ redeems it. Praise God. Okay? That's a good one to amen on, church, if you were awkward on the earlier ones. Let's amen on that one. Christ redeems it. And secondly, Christ replaces it. Okay? Christ replaces it. Friend, do you know that Jesus said in heaven there is no marriage? No marriage. And there will be no sexual unions in heaven either. Now you might say, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. Like heaven to me would be now the freedom to have sex with whoever I wanted, whenever I wanted. That sounds more like heaven to me. Well, why no sex in eternity? Okay, well, let's go back to the purpose of sex. Okay? Sex is a picture of what God is like. But in eternity, we don't need a picture. We are seeing him face to face. Okay, so that goes out the window. Uh, sex is about uh, reproduction and more people, but we're not really having reproduction and pregnancies and all the rest in eternity, so that goes out the window. Sex is about protection, but there's no temptation and no sin forever, so it's not needed in that way anymore, which only leads us down finally to the pleasure of sex. Did you know that that's no longer needed either? Why? Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We think, we hear that there's no sex in heaven and that mean, we think to ourselves there's less pleasure in eternity. And actually it's the opposite of that. In reality what God intends to do is to make eternity so pleasurable that sex will not be missed. Did you hear that? Eternity will be so pleasurable that sex isn't going to be missed. So are you saying that eternity will be so filled with pleasure that we won't have sex because we won't want to or need to? Well, that's what God says. There is a fullness of pleasure and a fullness of joy in eternity that will be so great that we will look back at even those moments of sexual, highest moments of sexual pleasure, we'll look back at those and we will see them as being so much less than what I have all the time. We're not gonna miss it at all. C.S. Lewis, Christian writer, he compares it to a boy being told about sex uh, who wonders, the, the people that t tell him this, he wonders to them if you eat chocolate during sexual intimacy. 
When he is told, no, because lovers have better things in mind, he can't conceive of it because chocolate is the best pleasure he's ever had. Okay? God plans to make the pleasures of eternity with him so wonderful that sex and chocolate and everything else is not nearly pleasurable enough when compared to every moment forever with him. So there's no sex in heaven, and you won't miss it a bit. 